Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Previously. On Macabre London. We investigated the heinous crimes of Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, a medical man who took advantage of his position, thinking he wouldn't get caught, but his luck ran out after four suspicious deaths occurred as a result of his treatments, which turned out to be deadly. However, a fifth victim didn't go unnoticed, so much so that the verdict was posthumously carved into his headstone marking Cream as the murderer. After a brief stint in prison in Illinois, when released, Thomas decided to escape the heat in America, and with his inheritance money burning a hole in his pocket, he made his way to London. You'd be forgiven for thinking he may want to escape his previous life, seeking anonymity in England, but as with Cream's former life, nothing he ever did was led by pure intent. Instead, he had his sights set on picking up where he left off, continuing to kill. Today, on Macabre London, we uncover part two of the cream poisonings. back to part two of this episode. If you're joining me at this stage, then you're going to be a little lost if you don't watch part one. So you can either click the card, which is on screen now, if you're watching the show on YouTube, to take you to that video or click the link in the description if you're listening to the podcast and that will take you there too. And then come back here when you're done for part two. So as a very brief recap, last time we learned all about Thomas Neil Cream the sneaky, evil man who thought he could get away with murdering people, and for the most part, he did. By the time he was released from prison, he had claimed five victims that we know about. His estranged wife Flora, who he slowly poisoned to death via post, and who supposedly contracted tuberculosis and died, but whose slow deterioration was definitely to do with Thomas, so we could give him a pass and call that one manslaughter, but even still, she was the first victim. 
Then we had Kate Gardner, a rumoured love interest of his that he got pregnant and then supposedly prescribed suicide too instead of a termination because terminations were illegal, so she would end up dead in an alleyway behind his practice. And despite the evidence pointing to her very clearly having been murdered due to struggle marks and the difficulty of overdosing yourself on chloroform, she was written off as a suicide, leaving Thomas to go free again. Mary Ann Faulkner was the next person to suffer at Cream's hands when he butchered her so badly during a home termination that she died hours later. Ellen Stack died after she ingested strychnine lace tablets which Cream had prescribed as birth control. And the one he got caught for, Daniel Stott, who, after confronting his own wife and Cream about an affair they were having, found his epilepsy medication, which was prescribed by Thomas, to have been again tampered with using the favourite killer, strychnine, which resulted in his passing away in horrific pain within hours of taking the tablets he thought would keep him healthy. After having been convicted for the final murder when the family spoke up, Cream was put behind bars for life, but only served ten years. His brother managed to bribe officials using inheritance money Thomas had been left by his father when he passed whilst he was in prison, and they let his serial killer sibling go free. After a brief trip to Canada, where he stayed with his brother and his wife, who apparently detested Thomas, saying he was a vile, condescending man, he made his way back to London, where he had honed his skills as a doctor, knowing he could easily disappear into its dark and soft underbelly it would be a perfect place for him to go undetected. In 1888, the East End of London had been subjected to arguably the most infamous serial killer of all time, Jack the Ripper. These crimes had been bandied around and had made big news around the world. No doubt Cream fancied himself as a gentleman killer, a murderer that could evade capture, smarter than your average 'er ne'er-do-well. After all, the similarities were there. Thomas preyed on vulnerable working women. He was a doctor, which was also a rumoured profession of Jack, and he was from a better background than that of his victims, something else Jack was rumoured to be. At various points in the Jack law, his identity had been rumoured to be that of Queen Victoria's doctor, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll, and even Prince Albert himself. So no doubt Thomas, with his disproportionate ego, thought himself as a deplorable elite murderer despite that being quite the contradiction in terms. However, how can you brag about a crime when you don't want to get caught? Thomas set sail from Canada in September 1891, bound for Liverpool aboard the SS Teutonic. The crossing took around three weeks, and magically he refrained from murdering anyone during the voyage. When he arrived in Liverpool in October, Thomas made his way straight to his old stomping grounds back in London, heading to Lambeth, where he'd lived previously when he was studying at St Thomas's Hospital. This particular area of London was suffocating in poverty. Workhouses monopolised the landscape, and tenement housing made these areas cramped. Those who didn't want to live in the workhouses and couldn't afford tenement living were forced onto the streets, with often huge swathes of homeless men living on the roads. Children were also not immune from the abject poverty, with many kids usually orphaned or abandoned by their parents who couldn't afford to look after them, sleeping on the street or huddling together inside discarded barrels for warmth. However, some people were able to help by holding dinners specifically for children living on the street, and according to one newspaper report I found, a twice-weekly dinner held just in Lambeth for homeless or poor children 
was regularly attended by over 600 children at each sitting. The situation in the slums was hideous for all sorts of reasons. Malnourishment and disease was rife, but also the weather didn't help matters. During the previous winter in 1890, one of the worst and longest periods of cold weather on record, many people had perished due to exposure. Throughout the whole of November to late January 1890, the temperature didn't rise above zero degrees Celsius. That's 32 Fahrenheit for all my Americans out there. Needless to say, with no heating and fires constantly burning, London was a cold, smoggy and uninviting place to be. Thomas knew exactly what he was doing when he headed to Lambeth to find lodgings. He would prey on the vulnerable. After a few nights' stay in a hotel on Fleet Street, Thomas found himself a flat at 103 Lambeth Palace Road, a literal stone's throw from St Thomas's Hospital. With the hospital looming over the destitute slum, you would think that employment from the hospital would be in abundance. However, before the arrival of the National Health Service allowing free medical care, hospitals were mainly for the middle class and upper class, so those that were living in the slums were not even deemed welcome to work there, let alone to be treated inside its walls. This meant that for Thomas, he could take advantage of the weak and vulnerable that needed help and turn it to his own advantage. By pretending he worked at St Thomas's, Cream instantly had the trust of any patients he may come into contact with, and of course would seemingly take pity on those who couldn't afford the treatment St Thomas's offered inside its clean and sterile walls, but instead could offer treatments at home for a fraction of the cost. After a few weeks of raising his profile around the area, Thomas began ingratiating himself with the working girls, saying he could offer treatments that would assist with their line of business, and due to his well-dressed stature, often wearing a top hat and a smart suit, he was always treated with the utmost trust and respect. This also helped when he came to obtain his favourite substances from the local chemist. Cream, whilst in prison, hadn't managed to kick his drug habit and was still dosing himself with various substances. However, he'd upped his intake due to more frequent headaches he was suffering as a result of strabismus, an eye condition that was causing his eye to deviate from its normal position. This led to an increased morphine intake, which led him to become more brazen with his approach to ending the lives of others. When acquiring his morphine from the chemist, he also picked up his favourite murder weapon, strychnine. Still posing as a St Thomas's hospital doctor, the chemist had no suspicion that they may have just handed over a dosage of death powder to a serial killer. With the strychnine burning a metaphorical hole in Cream's pocket, Thomas pulled together a quick plan to off his next victim just two weeks into arriving into London. On the evening of the 13th of October, Nellie Donworth, a 19-year-old working girl who had quit her job at the local bottle factory in favour of better pay working on the street, went out to meet a man who she'd been speaking to earlier that day. The man in question was said to be elegant, well-dressed and well-spoken. This would be great for Nell because he would likely have more money and pay more than the average punter. For many working girls at that time, including Nell, they would often use their own lodgings to work from, with their significant others nearby to offer some protection. This was seemingly not a problem for some men who were happy for their women to work and be the breadwinner whilst they did very little. After all, an hour entertaining a gentleman could earn enough for a day's worth of meals, whereas a whole day working in the bottle factory would probably earn about the same. 
The work wasn't well paid, but the hours were better, and for 19-year-old Nell, who could entertain a few men per day and night, this was a better prospect than being confined to the factory. Nell went to meet the sharply dressed gentleman in a nearby pub before the arrangements of where the deed would be carried out were finalised. After all, if this man was wealthier, he would have fancier digs than hers, and it would be worth the risk to go there without the usual protection from her army boyfriend. After a brief chat, Nell took some swigs from a bottle of beer the man handed her. Not long after, she would be found alone in a nearby alleyway, having been abandoned, shouting in pain, clutching her stomach. Thinking she was just drunk, a male friend of hers carried her back home, putting her in bed, where her symptoms only increased and her condition deteriorated rapidly. With spasms now starting to affect her whole body, Nell managed to at least give insight into what was going on, telling the room, which now contained her friend, landlord and army boyfriend, that she had taken a drink from a man with a moustache and a top hat, and the bottle had white stuff in it. Realising she had been poisoned, the room rallied to get Nell help. Her friend ran to a nearby doctor who came to see her, and then called for the police, who then bundled her into a carriage, sending her to the nearby St Thomas's Hospital, hoping they'd be able to treat her. But it was too late. She passed away in agony on the journey. The results of the post-mortem were definitive, and cast no doubt that Nell had been murdered using strychnine. With Nell barely cold, the murderer struck again. Just seven days later, another victim would succumb to the same hideous death Nell did. When the landlady of 27 Lambeth Road ordered her servant girl, Lucy Rose, to dust one of its bedrooms, she went snooping through the tenant, Matilda Clover's, belongings. Lucy didn't know her sneaky invasion of Matilda's privacy would later be used to patch together the final few hours of the lodger's life. Lucy found a note on Matilda's dresser, which read, Meet me tomorrow outside the Canterbury. Come clean and sober. Remember when I bought you your boots? You were too drunk to speak. Please bring this paper and envelope with you. Yours, Fred. Seemingly, Fred had been courting 27-year-old Matilda, who was a mother to a two-year-old boy who also lived in the lodgings with her. Buying her a pair of boots, which wouldn't have been cheap, would have gained her trust. And as a result, Matilda went off to meet Fred that evening. It's not known if Fred was paying for her services as she had recently been forced into working the streets. The father of Matilda's child had left, leaving her with her young boy to look after, having to earn all the income to care for him and also herself. Matilda had always been keen on alcohol, but this had got worse since her breakup, and she was now drinking heavily. Was Fred's request that she turn up sober to their meeting a genuine plea for her to get better? Or was it a tactic so that he could later use her alcoholism to encourage her to drink and imbibe some poisoned liquid? At about 9pm that night, Matilda and the man returned back to her dwellings, and Lucy the servant girl saw them both by the light of an oil lamp, making their way into Matilda's room. The man was dressed in a top hat, and he had a moustache. Not long after they went into the room, Matilda left the house, returning back with some ale. She then disappeared back into the room, and the next time she would be heard from was at 3am, when screams erupted into the night, waking everyone in the household. When Lucy and the landlords entered the room, they found Matilda naked and howling in pain on her bed. She was alone. 
she managed to tell them that Fred had given her some tablets, which she had taken, and said she must have been poisoned. The landlady called for a doctor, but despite their every effort, Matilda was dead by 7am. She died in agonising pain, suffocating as her lungs stopped working. Despite Matilda telling the whole room she'd been poisoned, her personal physician decided he knew better and said her alcoholism was to blame. Matilda had been seeking help from Dr Graham, a physician who had prescribed her sedatives to help with her alcoholism. Matilda, for her sins, was trying to get herself off the booze and to forge out a better life for her and her son. In speaking with the mysterious Fred, she'd also been trying to take precautions so that she didn't become ill as a result of the profession she'd been forced into. Fred had said he could prescribe pills which would help her to not contract venereal disease, which was rife in the population at the time. And whilst working on the street, it was pretty much guaranteed that you would contract it. It was those pills she took which killed her. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Dr. Graham, for some reason though, decided to completely overlook the condemning statement from Matilda about who her murderer was, as did the police, and her death was ruled an accidental overdose. After the two killings, Fred seemingly disappeared from the streets of Lambeth, and when Thomas went back home for a few months to collect some final inheritance, the deaths ceased. However, the game wasn't over just yet. Thomas returned to London and he became obsessed with a lady whom he'd met on a trip to Hertfordshire, deciding he would make her his wife. Laura Sabatini was young, naive and in search of a man who could bankroll her dreams of becoming a fashion designer in London and as such, she was quite pleased when the wealthy and interesting Thomas was interested in her. After wooing her via letter and a few visits to each other's homes where Thomas acted like the perfect gentleman, the two became engaged. All the while, Thomas seemingly couldn't control himself as he was back to his old tricks. When he approached a working girl by the name of Louise Harris, who provided Thomas with the alias of Lou Harvey, she was smarter than your average cool girl, 
just as Thomas fancied himself as smarter than the average murderer. Lou entertained the doctor at a hotel in Piccadilly, and when he asked to see her again, he said he would bring back some tablets for her to take to help with her complexion. When the doctor dutifully handed over the tablets to Lou, not charging her for the service, she took the pills. She was then told by Thomas to meet him later at 11pm, and the two would go and see a late show at a music hall. She arrived, but Thomas didn't. Seemingly Thomas had thought Lou had ingested the pills, and by now would be incapacitated or dead. However, when Lou had been handed the tablets by Thomas, she pretended to take them, but instead waited until he looked away and threw them into the Thames, not trusting what he was trying to give her. This act of mistrust saved her life. Thinking Lou was now dead, Thomas moved on and decided he would woo two girls who were working together and lure them to the same fate, but the pair were not as suspicious as Lou, and for that misjudgment, they would pay with their lives. Emma Shrivel and Alice Marsh, 18 and 21 respectively, were both approached by the doctor, who asked them if they could go back to their lodgings for a drink or two. When back at their lodgings, which they shared together, they both sipped from a bottle of Guinness provided by the doctor. He then went on to tell them about his miracle cure pills, which he said they could try for free. After the shenanigans of the evening were over, he left three pills for each of them to take before bed, which they both did. In the dead of night, the familiar howls of pain and anguish rang out in the lodgings of the girls, who awoke their landlords, who in turn called for doctors, but much like poor Nell, who had gone before them, the two girls died in transit on the way to the hospital. With the double murder, this was a bold move as it outed these crimes as murders. Perhaps Thomas had got bored of his crimes being written off as overdoses or misadventure, and committed the double murder as a red flag to the police. Whatever the intention behind the double death, the police finally sat up and paid attention. This was quite obviously a murder. Finally, the post-mortem results were linked to that of Nell, and the penny finally dropped that this was not a one-off occurrence. However, the mystery still stood. Who was it who was carrying out these horrific crimes? At this point, Thomas was still off the hook. He could have easily just walked away and gotten away with all of the murders, but instead, his ego got the better of him, and he still had to twist the figurative knife a little deeper. Choosing to chance his arm even further, Thomas decided to send a letter to the coroner in charge of the inquest of Emma and Alice's deaths, anonymously, of course. This letter said he knew who the murderer was and implicated another doctor. He then subsequently contacted the doctor's father and said that for an exorbitant fee, he would destroy the evidence which would prove his son's involvement in the murders. The claims in the letter were investigated and quickly proved to be false. After all, there were plenty of witnesses, alibis and also signatures on chemist ledgers which proved the accused man's innocence. However, the blackmailer made a mistake in his letters that led to his downfall. The letters included the detail of Matilda's murder, which I scarcely need to remind you, even after her blatant cries of murder, was ruled as an accident. By this time, Thomas really may have just been parading around with a huge sign saying, I did it! because when a visiting policeman, which Cream had met the acquaintance of, 
started asking about the poisonings in Lambeth, he took him on a tour of the murder sites. So obviously, the policeman was extremely suspicious of the amount of details this gruesome tour guide had about the murders, and instantly went and told his London equivalents that he thought Cream was the killer. And you can only imagine how well that must have gone down with the local police. This New York copper has been here for all of five minutes and has just solved the case you've been working on. After a short bit of surveillance and a check-in with the police in Chicago who confirmed Cream's time behind bars for poisoning someone, that was it. The game was eventually up. Thomas was eventually arrested for the murder of just Matilda, but at his subsequent trial, he was found guilty of the murders of also Nell, Emma and Alice. Lou, who survived to tell the tale, also played a big part in providing evidence, standing in court, staring down the man who had tried to give her the drugs that would have killed her. She told the jury every sordid detail which led to his conviction. And so did Laura Sabatini. Despite Thomas not killing her, she still had plenty of evidence that helped to lead to his conviction. It took just 12 minutes for the jury to deliver the verdict of guilty on all counts, plus the extortion attempts, and Thomas was done for. When the judge passed sentence against Thomas, he had much to say. He labelled Thomas as cold-blooded and remarked that the crime was an unparalleled atrocity, which was diabolical in its character. It was safe to say that the judge didn't really need to say much more, and nobody in the courtroom had the slightest sympathy for the murderer which stood before them. Thomas was sentenced to death by hanging and sent to languish in the most infamous and foulest of all London prisons at that time, Newgate. In the subsequent weeks, Thomas lived in hope that he may yet receive a reprieve, holding out hope that some evidence obtained in Canada may help his cause the contents of which mainly tried to prove that Thomas was insane. This did help somewhat in delaying his execution by a few days so the Home Secretary could review the evidence presented to him, but much to Cream's dismay, the verdict was not overturned and the sentence still stood. Thomas's life now had an end date and the reality of the matter was sinking in. When his solicitor visited him in his cell, asking him to set his affairs in order and finalising the details of his will, Thomas bid farewell to his associate and thanked him for all he'd done for him. At this moment, he realised this was it. The game was over and the end was now very much in sight. Seeing him begin to wilt before his eyes with the sudden realisation his time left was limited, The solicitor asked the chaplain of the prison to pay Thomas a visit so he could unburden himself of his grief at his situation. The next day, the preparations were in order for Thomas's execution, and the man himself awoke at 7am and began carrying out the mundane tasks he'd done every day, except on this day, this would be the last time he ever did them. He washed himself before getting dressed into his execution outfit, and unlike others before him, and somewhat juxtaposed to his usual elegant dress, Thomas hadn't requested anything other than his prison uniform to wear on the day of his death. His breakfast was served at 8am, a final meal of a pint of tea, bread and butter, and two eggs, of which he ate very little. But he was accompanied by the chaplain, who now joined him in his cell, and the two would sit alone, giving him time to speak in confidence, perhaps atone for his sins, or plead for forgiveness. 
Whilst Thomas's demons were being exercised inside the prison, ghouls were gathering outside. The crowd, some of whom had been waiting since the sun rose, were congregating hoping to see anything that may give a hint of what was happening inside the prison walls. As the time of the execution drew near, a crowd of over 2,000 people stood outside the prison. The rich rubbed shoulders with the poor, and people from all over London were drawn together like vultures circling around a dying animal, waiting for the end. By 8.45, Thomas knew his time was drawing near when the nearby church's clock tower sounded out the bells for quarter to nine. Condemned individuals were always hanged on the hour, as this made the process of the subsequent 60-minute wait after execution much easier to calculate. And he didn't have long to wait. At five to nine, the door of the cell flew open, and the executioner, James Billington, entered the cell, pinioning Thomas's arms before leading him and a procession of officials, along with the chaplain who was now reading out the ominous burial of the dead, on a one-minute walk to the gallows. Thomas was reported to have looked pale, vacant and in shock as he stepped onto the wooden boards that would soon betray their sturdiness at the flick of a lever. The governor of the prison and the under-sheriff, the equivalent of the chief of police today, both stood with Cream on the gallows whilst the Lord's Prayer was read out by the chaplain. Cream looked around and said goodbye out loud to those on the platform with him, whilst Billington pinioned his legs and then placed a white bag over his head, along with the noose. As the prayer ended, the executioner gave the signal, and everyone except Cream took a step backwards. The lever was flung, and the trapdoor swung open, leaving the murderer to drop out of view. The Newgate bell tolled at 9am on the 15th of November 1892, heralding that Thomas Neil Cream was dead. The black flag which signified the deed had been done was hoisted into the rainy November morning above the prison for the waiting crowd to see. This caused the crowd to erupt into cheers and applause for the hangman. The monster they'd feared was now eradicated. It's no doubt that Thomas Neil Cream was an inherently evil and wicked man who preyed upon the vulnerable and used his position of power and inherent trust to exact his crimes. However, due to corruption, the ineptness of the police, and the mistreatment of women working on the street, he was allowed to continue killing with only a short stint in prison for a span of over 15 years. The lack of safety and respect provided to people carrying out the oldest profession in the world was lacking back then, and even though things have improved, there have still been subsequent serial killers who have preyed on these workers as they are afforded anonymity as part of the process, and as such, can evade capture for longer. To bring this right up to date, I'm going to leave a link in the description so you can learn about how this is still happening even today, and what can be done to help if you'd like to see us move on from the Dark Ages and prevent things like this from happening in the future. After all, the Victorian era seems like a long time ago, but the attitudes have not entirely changed. Oh, and one last thing to add to this tale. When Thomas dropped through the trapdoor on the day of his execution, the hangman said he heard him say, I am Jack before he died. If any of you have been dutifully keeping an eye on the dates, you'll have noticed that Cream was in prison during the Jack the Ripper murders. But again, the ego of the man knows no bounds. 
Equally, I can find no newspaper reports from the execution day which state this happened, so perhaps it's just another piece of law tacked on to this already abysmal tale. After all, in the end, the hangman really was the cat who got the cream. Thank you so much for joining me for that episode. I feel like it was an absolute beast of one. Um, I could have written even more. This could have been a three-parter, but I figured two parts was probably just enough to discuss this abysmally horrible man. If you enjoyed that episode and you'd like to help me make more of these, then please consider becoming a patron like our executive Patreon producers, Sam, Barry, Sarah, Kate, Veronica and Mary. And all of our other patrons too. You are so massively appreciated. You can help support the show from as little as $1 a month and $5 tiers and up get access to exclusive content such as the extra podcast and YouTube show, weird things I find in old newspapers, which will be going up there in a few days. So sign up now if you'd like to get involved in that and you'll get some tangible goodies sent through the post as well. And the next weird things I find in old newspapers is a really good one, so I would recommend that you check it out. As always, please let me know your thoughts about this case in the comments below on YouTube or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast. Loads of you have been in touch recently and I keep on getting messages pinging into my Instagram inbox and, and emails about different stories that you want to hear. So keep them coming. I love hearing from you. And also, I would love it if you spread the word about the show as well and tell your friends because I'd love to meet more people that like stuff like I do. Also, if you are new here and this is the first time you've watched this channel and you've stuck around all the way till this point, then do yourself a favour and subscribe because you obviously like it here and I'd like you to join the ghoul gang. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce and I'll see you ghouls next time. 